Hello and welcome to the Business Behind Sport podcast series from Ankura, the global expert services and advisory firm. I'm Rich Patel, a director in our London team at Ankura. In this series, we talk to sport industry leaders to explore their perspectives and insights on a variety of current topics and themes relating to the business side of sport. In this episode, Johnny Gray, a senior managing director in our sports advisory practice, talks to Khalid Ali, chief executive of the International Betting Integrity Association. They discuss developments in the sports betting industry, including its sheer size and revenues. Khalid explains what the IBIA is doing to combat competition manipulation and match fixing. We learn more about Khalid and Johnny's views on calls by some for a global anti-corruption agency for sport, similar to the World Anti-Doping Agency. And they discuss the need for international governments to institutionalise legislation to combat match fixing. They also speak about changes in the sports betting landscape in the USA, and what challenges may exist with the liberalisation of gambling across the country in recent years. Last month on the Ankura Business Behind Sport podcast, we talked to Bobby Hacker about the global sports betting landscape. And this month we're going to move forward and we're going to talk about the global sports betting landscape. The sports betting industry has grown enormously over the last 20 years with the advent of online and then app-based betting. And it's a large and complex area. And I'm very pleased today to be joined by Khalid Ali. Khalid is the Chief Executive Officer of the International Betting Integrity Association. And I can think of no better guest to help us navigate the world of sports betting than Khalid. So welcome, Khalid. Hi, Johnny. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. So, Khalid, first of all, maybe you could just explain to our listeners, what is the International Betting Integrity Association, the IBIA, and, and how did you come to be connected with it? Yeah, I mean, look, the association itself uh, has existed since 2005, so really from almost the beginning of when online betting started. And it was a result of a couple of the CEOs from some of the big European firms getting together and realizing that you know, they needed a way to protect their customers and their product from any betting-related fraud. And that meant having a vehicle to share information on suspicious betting. Uh, normally, what would have happened back in the day was that if you were a bookmaker, you'd have picked up the phone to a friend of yours and another bookmaker and said, look, have you seen anything suspicious on this type of event? And it was a very informal way of doing things. And these CEOs wanted to create a, a more formalized vehicle. And so... They decided to create the association, which back then was called the European Sports Security Association. And then it was rebranded a number of years later to ESA, Sports Betting Integrity. And then in 2018, we reviewed the name and the positioning and all that kind of stuff and decided that we needed a a name to better reflect who we are, what we do and where we want to be. And that's why we rebranded from ESA to the International Betting Integrity Association. Now, I actually joined in 2008. At that point, the association didn't really have a structure in place. My own background is I was working for a pretty big consultancy here in Brussels, and I had worked for some blue chip clients, but I also worked for a number of trade associations. And one of those trade associations was a group called the Mobile Challengers, who were challenging the dominance of the incumbents in the mobile phone market. And there was a lot of similarities and synergies, I guess, with online betting, which was emerging at that time. The funny thing is, was actually I was offered a job with another gaming gambling trade association, which I turned down because I just didn't feel it was the right fit. But a year later, 
I got a knock on the door and they asked me, would you be interested in setting this up? And that was much more kind of what I was looking to do. When I say set it up, there was, as I said, an embryo there to create something. It was almost a blank sheet of paper. But we needed to put more of those kind of processes and mechanisms in place and also give it a profile. And so that that's what I've been doing essentially for the last 15 years. We started with a handful of betting operators, about five or six at the time. We are now 42 betting operators. Collectively, we have a handle of about $150 billion. $150 billion. Yeah, it's a big amount. Um, that's if you, you know, combine all the revenue of our members together collectively, uh, we would come out at about $150 billion, uh, which is quite a sizable amount of the market. And all our members are regulated and licensed in multiple jurisdictions. They have quite a, they have to go through a due diligence. We've actually made our due diligence requirements a lot more stricter over the last six months. We've decided that internally that we had a discussion about the type of members we want to allow in. And one of the things that we've changed is that if you're an operator from what we believe to be an underregulated jurisdiction, and this is on the front page of our application form, you are unlikely to get membership to the association. So basically, you would need to be an operator in multiple jurisdictions, and those jurisdictions would need to be of a certain standard. I mean, it's fascinating, isn't it, that you know, this whole business of regulation, unregulated, then this sort of grey area in the middle, the sort of under-regulated market. I mean, you know, your members are obviously in the regulated sports betting market, but how do you see the overall market if you compare those different constituencies? So we're in a in the last 20 years, we've been through a period of disruption, um, obviously with the advent of the internet and now with smartphones. And I guess you could say that online gambling was one of the original disruptors. Um, it came into a, a marketplace which was you know, dominated by uh, lotteries. I mean, if you look in Europe, actually only the UK had any legislation to do with uh, gambling, which went back to the, uh, to the 60s. Um, and that actually got updated in 2005 and is now being updated again. And so you had a number of these kind of European based, and it was predominantly European operators who came into the online space, the online gambling space, um, who realized there was a, an opportunity there to basically create, uh, take an old industry, gambling, and make it into uh, something digital. And so you had these operators back in the early 2000s names which are still going on today, like BWIN and Unibet and Bet365, of course, who saw those opportunities and have now built extremely large businesses on back of online gambling. And I think online gambling itself has changed a lot uh, too. You know, it's now kind of, it's there's an intersection between gambling, entertainment and, and technology. And they all play a part now in where we're going with the gambling industry in general and the betting industry in particular, especially now with the advent of the US opening up, you're beginning to see more and more uh, entertainment companies looking at betting operators. So you see now deals between ESPN and some of the betting operators, Fox Sports and some of the betting operators. So you can see exactly where we might end up. And that's because, of course, betting and sport have always intrinsically been linked together. This goes back... Uh, hundreds of years, in fact. Um, I, I mean, I think the first recorded 
match fixing was in the Olympics, you know, sort of ancient days before 1000 BC. I mean, it's as old as the hills, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, absolutely. No doubt about it. And some people say the rules of betting actually came because of golf. So there is always that, there's that intrinsic link between gambling and sports and the changes that we've seen over the last 15 years, you know, we've gone from bets being placed on computers to now bets being placed on, on mobile phones. And we'll see where the, where the future takes us. I mean, there's a lot of talk now about augmented reality, virtual reality. You know, could it be that one day we're going to stick on a headset and we're going to be in a stadium watching a virtual football game and able to place bets on that? These are all things which people are, are looking at and could potentially in the next five to 10 years can emerge. But bottom line for us is, is that our main job is to make sure that people who are placing bets with our members are not trying to also fix any part of the event itself. And I think that's where we have built up very strong relationships with all the relevant sports governing bodies and regulators and law enforcement agencies. And as you'll know, Johnny, from your time as the chief executive at the International Tennis Integrity Agency, you know, our relationship with tennis is absolutely fundamental because the majority of the alerts that we receive are actually on tennis. So we need to have that relationship in place there so that when we see something suspicious, we can pass that on to the relevant sporting regulator. Yeah, no, I mean, I, I absolutely thoroughly enjoyed working with you, Colin, in, in that sense. I, you know, let's get on to gambling harms now because you talked about the size of the industry, where it's going. We'll come back to the USA in a moment, but let's talk a bit about gambling harm and, and match fixing and so on. You know, I, I think sports betting can often be a sort of quite a polemic issue for some. You know, and I'm trying to be balanced on it. Obviously, on the one harm, data that's sold to the industry by sport produces revenues which, in many ways, support the sport, pay prize money, and so on. And of course, betting can increase. Participation and engagement by fans. There's no doubting that. But of course, it has its darker sides. And we've just said, you know, match fixing perhaps is all this sport itself. Talk a bit more about how, how you help the industry bear down on that very small percentage you talked about where we see competition manipulation in sport. What are you trying to get done? What does success look like? As an association, we, as I mentioned, have 42 betting operators. And the reason they're part of the uh, association is so that we can share any information on suspicious betting. And what will happen is that if an operator sees something unusual, they'll report that to us. And e alert, an alert is then sent out to the rest of the operators um, who are then asked to feed back into the platform that we've created. And we have a team that will then look at the information that they've been sent They'll analyze that and then they will look to see if there is enough evidence there to pass that information on to the relevant sport governing body or regulator. And there's a number of indicators that the operators use to identify something which is unusual. For example, when uh, there's a lot of bets coming in in a short period of time in a specific region, that's one of the kind of the indicators. If a new accounts are being opened up, it's obviously another type of indicator. And there's a whole kind of series of these types of indicators, which I'm not going to go into because obviously we don't know who's listening to this podcast. But we're not going to give away everything about how our members, you know, identify unusual and suspicious betting. But the key thing to know is that there are processes in place. There are indicators there. And that once an alert has been sent to our platform, 
it does get relayed to the rest of the operators who then feed back into the system and then the team does the rest of the work. Now, the most important thing is that we're not an investigative body. That information that we receive, if there is enough evidence there, is then sent to the relevant organization who should have the capacity to then take it to the next step. And that's why we work and we have in place memorandums of understanding with different stakeholders. So, for example, as I mentioned, the International Tennis Integrity Agency, UEFA, FIFA, the International Olympic Committee, these are the key umbrella organizations that we would be working with. We also work with regulators such as you know, the UK, uh, the UK regulator, the French regulator. And now, more and more, with the US opening up, we're having to work with a lot of the uh, US states as well. Yeah, no, that sounds great, Colin. And as you say, you need good partnerships to make all that work. How do you see this developing? I mean, people have often said to me, should there be a WADA for corruption? I'm not sure of the arguments in favor of that. We've seen attempts such as the Matlin Convention for governments to institutionalize all the models, the laws. You know, it's amazing that match fixing is still not a crime in many countries. You have to sort of use some sort of economic legislation to charge people. We've got organized crime you know well, penetrating some sports. Where are we going with this? So we've been working with the Players Association for almost 10 years now. In fact, we just hired the former Secretary General of the EU Athletes, which is an umbrella organization for athletes' federations across Europe, to become our education ambassador. And that's one of the things that we we did, actually. We were the first, actually, to pioneer an education, pan-European education campaign that's educated 36,000, over 36,000 athletes across Europe. Now, when we've had discussions with them about, you know, about WADA, I mean, they are not big fans of, of WADA, as you can, as you can imagine. I mean, from their side, it's extremely inefficient. There's issues around personal data. There's, you know, this 24-7 monitoring of athletes and not allowing them to have a normal family life. These all are things which come out of the fore when you start talking about something like this type of wider type of organization. And, you know, they always say that the overall costs are huge. You know, the cost of wider is, I think it's like almost $230 million a year to perform about 270,000 doping tests. And even then, there's no standardization in the reporting from the NADOs. So those are the challenges with WADA. And, you know, if we were thinking about creating a similar kind of organization structure, I mean, the first question is who's actually going to pay for it? And I think that's the the first thing that needs to be, you know, sorted out. And then, of course, there's all those other issues that I've just talked about. I think the processes that we've got in place right now, having those direct relationships with the sports governing body, and I speak on behalf of the you know, the regulated private betting sector, that, you know, that is working for us. And, you know, we've obviously tried to build on that as much as we can. We're involved in a number of different task forces and and groups from the IOC to, you know, in fact, we just had the ITIA come and present a few months ago to over 20 of our betting operators, explaining the work that they do and how we can actually build that relationship further going forward. And so we have all these processes in place and and it works. I think the challenge that we have, especially now, is that you know we're dealing with the kind of the big umbrella organizations, but there are much smaller you know organizations out there, especially now that we've seen privately organized tournaments kind of crop up, and how we need to build those relationships with those types of organizations because they don't have the same structure, they don't have the same integrity mechanisms in place, 
And that's quite a challenge. And I think one of the things that we're beginning to see, and I think this is partly a result of COVID, but is you're seeing the emergence of more privately organized tournaments. You know, we've seen that now, for example, in golf. We've seen it actually try and happen with football, with the European Super League. That's kind of disappeared for now, but quite sure that it's going to come up again at some point. So there is this kind of, you know, and we've seen it in tennis with UTR, which has kind of sprung up, you know, is doing relatively well from what I can see. So those are the, the issues that, you know, the challenges going forward that we, we need to face is how do we engage with those types of organizations? Yeah, no, I absolutely think that's right. You make an important point that, you know, not all competition manipulation is, is to do with manipulating the betting market. I think that's, that's really important. I agree with you. I don't really see a place for a sort of water equivalent for corruption. But I, I do think that I'd like to see more governments ratify and implement the Macula Convention and put in place a sort of, I think Australia's done really well there, but other governments, I think, still quite a long way behind. And perhaps, you know, I think you know, I'm interested in the correlation between betting data and sports performance data is perhaps an area where big data can give us a bit more help. You talked earlier on about, you know, working with regulators, and, and I'd like to come back to the USA on our previous podcast, Bobby Hacker from the Association of Sports Lawyers talked about deregulation of betting as a bit of a wild west in the US. As somebody who is looking to make sure that you know that market doesn't have problems with integrity issues. How do you see it emerging, and what are your concerns over? I mean, you may not agree it's a wild west, but I, I wonder what your what concerns you may have, Colin, if any, about how it's been liberalised, if you like. Well, look, you know, the US has has grown substantially over the last few years. We've gone from pretty much very limited betting, which took place in one jurisdiction in particular, Nevada, to now it being in over 20 jurisdictions in the US. And the kind of the key challenge there is that every state is opening up slightly differently from one another. And there's different requirements. And as an integrity body, we actually also have to be licensed in certain jurisdictions where they have quite strict integrity provisions in place. And that's also quite challenging because the amount of detail that they want from us is quite substantial. I mean, I've had to give my fingerprints. I've had to declare everything in my bank account. It's quite an invasive process to get set up in the US. And that's just as a, as a kind of a, a, a vendor to get a vendor license, a minor vendor license. So imagine what, what it's like if you're a betting operator there. But the market is big. It's growing. I think that it's reflected just by, you know, by the number of operators that want to be to be present there. And that's really where all the activity is, not just in the US, but also, I would say, in North America in general, because Ontario, the province of Ontario, just opened up this year as well. And they put in right. place a number of really good regulations, which I would say are you know operator-friendly in terms of you know, the amount of tax that they're asking. It's an open license system, so it's not restricted just to uh, a handful of betting operators. And I think they've got a pretty good structure in place there. But yes, the challenge is that you're not dealing with one, uh, in the US anyway, not with one country. You're literally dealing with 50 individual countries. And that's where the issue is, because there is a lot of duplication taking place. But that's just the way it is in the US. And that's that's how it will be for the foreseeable future. Yeah, and I think what Bobby was referring to is that sort of, you know, the state's doing slightly its own thing. And you know, it'll remain to be seen whether there needs to be some sort of federal 
structure within which it all works and her data is shared and all that sort of thing. I think that's, you know, with, with his lawyer's hat on, you can sort of see potentially problems emerging there. But, um, no, fascinating what's happening with the US and, and I guess, you know, the next frontier, as we talked about, is maybe India with fancy sports opening up there and what have you. Carla, thank you very much indeed for joining us on the podcast today from, from Brussels. We, we really appreciate your insights into the betting industry, sports betting industry, you know, where is now, how we got here, where we're going, some of the challenges associated with ensuring integrity. In the, in the betting industry and, and the great work that you're doing. So thank you very much for joining us and I will see you soon, no doubt. If you enjoyed what you heard on this episode of The Business Behind Sport, make sure to subscribe wherever you listen. Just search for Ankura. You can follow all our latest insights and find out how we are supporting clients to reduce risk and protect business value by visiting ankura.com.